This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Every four years, our nation inaugurates a president to lead our country and the U.S. federal government. The transfer of power from one administration to the next marks a significant moment in U.S. history. Many may think the transition begins the day after the election, but in reality, it begins much earlier. Leading candidates from both parties begin an informal transition process as early as spring of the election year. While many may view this work done in vain, in the big picture, it is vital. Effective governing requires extensive preparation, including building a competent leadership team, making some 4,000 political appointments, planning a $4.7 trillion budget, creating a comprehensive policy agenda, overseeing large-scale operation processes and systems, and understanding how to manage a workforce of 2 million civilian employees and 2 million military personnel. What is the history of U.S. presidential transitions? Why are they so important? And how does the Partnership for Public Services Center for Presidential Transition work to improve this process? I'll explore these questions and so much more with Dave Marchek, Director of the Center for Presidential Transition at the Partnership for Public Service. Dave, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me and great to talk to you. Dave, what is the mission and history of the Partnership for Public Services Center for Presidential Transition? And can you identify the key strategic goals of the center? Sure. Well, I think it starts with the partnership's goals. Uh, You know, around 20 years ago, a fellow named Max Steyer, who runs the partnership, came up with the idea of creating a nonprofit focused on the effectiveness in government. And they did just really groundbreaking work and really are the only organization that is focused on this mission. So a very important mission, very important organization. What Max and the team realized, I think in 2008, was that the effectiveness of government really begins with an effective transition. And so in that year, They created a process to focus on transition planning and actually worked closely following the the Obama and McCain campaigns and their transition efforts. And that led to the launch of the Center for Presidential Transition. In 2012, the center became much more active and worked very closely with the Romney team led by Mike Levitt and Chris Liddell. Chris is now the deputy chief of staff in the Trump White House and worked very closely with the Romney team on their planning. And really, the Romney team set a new gold standard for effective planning for a transition. Obviously, they didn't win. And as Mike says, 
that ship never sailed. But that laid the groundwork for very good work on transition. And then in 2016, the partnership worked very closely with both the Trump transition teams, then led by Chris Christie and a fellow named Rich Bagger, and the Hillary Clinton team, um, which was chaired by John Podesta and then co-led by Ed Meyer and Ann O'Leary, and worked with those transition teams really from April-ish all the way through the election and beyond on all the issues related to planning for an effective transition. Dave, we are in a different world today than even just three months ago. How has the current pandemic national emergency impacted the center's mission and operations? Has it or will it change the way the center is approaching presidential transition? It's a great question. I think the most important thing that we've realized as we're all working from home, we're all isolated, we're all following Dr. Fauci's guidelines to social distance. Um, I wouldn't add that things are going okay, except my daughter wants to social distance from me, which is not that great, is that I think this emergency and the crisis has highlighted the importance of our work, that this could be the most important transition in modern times, either to a second Trump term or to a new president, because the crisis highlights the central role that effective government management and effectiveness in government has on the well-being of our country. And so I think our work is more important than ever. In terms of how it's been affected, obviously, we're doing things online. Yesterday, we had a high-level strategic planning session on the issue of presidential personnel, and we did it via Zoom. So, you know, that was different. We've been planning this meeting for six weeks. We had very, very senior people. And instead of everybody getting a room and being, uh, you know, in suits and being very formal, we all sat in our offices or living rooms in T-shirts and had the same meeting online. So I actually did shower for the meeting. I didn't shave. But otherwise, we're just working apace. The development of government-wide presidential transition planning in the United States has a relatively short history. Perhaps, Dave, you could start by giving us an overview of the history and evolution of U.S. presidential transitions and the legislative requirements associated with such transitions. What are the key aspects of a transition of power? Okay, this is just a great question and one that I may talk a little longer because I, I love the history of this. It's fascinating. And one of the things I've loved about this role is that I've gotten to read all about the history going way back in the United States with presidential transitions. So there have been terrible, horrible, very bad transitions throughout presidential history. I feel like it's the that great children's book of Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, Very Bad Day. So just a few. So for example, going back to Andrew Jackson, when he was elected, he refused to meet with Adams. They wouldn't meet. They hated each other. Adams refused to attend Jackson's inauguration. There was absolutely no collaboration. That also happened with Roosevelt and Hoover. They hated each other. There was total disdain. And Roosevelt and Hoover refused to talk to each other, collaborate in any way. They didn't even talk to each other in the car ride up to the inauguration. So there was basically no collaboration, no handoff, no cooperation. Truman in modern history basically was the first one to focus on this. When he was leaving, uh, he basically said, you know, I was kept in the dark by President Roosevelt. And obviously when he died, 
I was brought into the light. But he basically told his staff, and I have a great quote, he said, whoever is elected in the fall, I don't want him to face the kind of thing that I faced when I came into office, completely unbriefed and unprepared. So Truman actually tried to engage with Eisenhower and Stevenson, who were the candidates for office in 1952. Stevenson said, I'd love to work with you. Eisenhower said, no, that would be inappropriate. And Truman famously wrote him kind of a very snooty letter saying he was an idiot and he's compromising you know, the future of the country by not being willing to collaborate. Fast forward to 1976, Jimmy Carter, as a candidate, was the first candidate to really put together an, a, a big transition effort and to divert campaign resources to transition planning. So he had a team led by Jack Watson in Atlanta, which had around 50 people, and they quietly worked in the shadows to plan what Carter would do if he took over government. There was one big problem with what Carter did. Carter did, deserves great credit for doing this, but there was one big problem. He didn't tell the campaign. And so you had a campaign apparatus and a transition apparatus working totally separately, and the campaign people didn't know about the transition team until right before the election. So as you would expect, Carter wins, and there's a huge blow-up with the people on the campaign saying, hey, I got Carter elected. I deserve to run the government. I deserve to, be, to get all the good appointments. And the transition people led by Jack Watson said, hey, we're the smart people. We're not the political hacks. We are you know, prepared to run the government, and we should take over. And there was just a huge clash, and we did a podcast on that on Transition Lab. And essentially what Stu Eisenstadt and David Rubenstein said is that that poor transition effort, the lack of coordination, cost Carter his first year in office. It imperiled him. So fast forward to George W. Bush. So George W. Bush, obviously, there was the Bush v. Gore recount. The transition period used to be, before 1933, about four months. And in 1933, the law was changed and shortened it to around 75, 77 days, basically the election to January 20th. In Bush v. Gore, that period was shortened because Bush wasn't elected, essentially, confirmed as the president until mid-December. So his transition was 35-ish days. And the Clinton team didn't roll out the red carpet for Bush, let's say. You know, Clinton team wanted Gore to win. And there were a lot of hard feelings over the Supreme Court case. And basically, there wasn't a lot of collaboration. And Bush remembered that. Fast forward to eight months later, 9-11 happens. And Bush doesn't have his entire national security team in place. He has his cabinet and deputy secretaries, but not many people below that. And this is one of the issues that the 9-11 Commission report focused on was a president has to be able to get his teams, particularly his national security teams, in quickly. So Bush decided uh, in the second term, much like Truman did when he was kept in the dark, that I want to do something better. So he asked Josh Bolton, who was then chief of staff, to put together the best transition effort ever. And Josh really did a fantastic job and deserves enormous credit. He started engaging both the McCain campaign and the Obama campaign right after the conventions and basically said, I'm going to treat both of you equally. We're going to work with both of you. 
and we're going to smooth your transition to power because we're at a war. It's you'll be the first wartime president to have a transition in four decades. And I want to make this good for you and easy for you because it's in the best interest of the country. The other thing that Josh did was he organized the agencies to do the same. So he organized an agency transition team with the 15 cabinet agencies and others, and they worked to prepare for either a McCain victory or an Obama victory, and basically to hand over the reins in a smooth and peaceful way. So what happened is that there was a presidential transition act that was passed in 1963, but it was amend- it's been amended post-Bush to basically codify the best practices that Josh Bolton and President Bush put in place. And so that includes a requirement that the agencies prepare to work with whomever wins, that they have a transition process that starts six months before the election. It requires strong collaboration with the campaigns. It requires the GSA to provide space and security clearances through the DNI to the transition teams. And it basically institutionalized the focus of transition planning. So there's a lot of history. There's been a lot of bad transitions. I would say the Bush to Obama transition was probably the best in history, both because of the collaboration of the outgoing Bush administration and also because the Obama team was very organized, did a very good job and got off to a good start. I'm sorry for the long answer, but it's a great question. Dave, what factors contribute to the increase in importance of presidential transitions? I think there are a couple big issues. One is that the government has become much more complex. Two is that the sheer volume of change that happens with an incoming administration is greater than ever. It's essentially the largest takeover of any organization anywhere in the world in 77 days. So there are 4,000 positions that need to be filled, 1,200 or so need to be confirmed by the Senate. And to be effective, a president has to have his or her people in place quickly. And so I think the combination of the experience that President George W. Bush had in 9-11, the experience other presidents have had with crises occurring right after an election, combined with complexity of the government, has highlighted the importance of smooth and effective transition planning. The other thing that we've tried to do at the partnership and the Presidential Transition Act has done is change this notion that candidates are looking presumptuous when they do transition planning. Really going back to Carter, Candidates never really wanted to be public about transition planning because they would be seen as measuring the drapes, too confident, too cocky, and that sends a bad signal. I think that what we've tried to do and what the law has tried to do is change that paradigm so that it would be irresponsible of a candidate, not presumptuous, but irresponsible not to have a transition team working for many, many months before the election to get ready. And Dave, as a follow-up, I'd, I'd like to dig deeper into the operations of presidential transitions, um, as prescribed in both the Presidential Transition Act of 1963 and the most recent Presidential Transition Enhancement Act. Uh, would you give us an overview of the agency and interagency transition planning requirements? What role does the General Services Administration, GSA, play in presidential transition? Okay, another great question. 
So there are two agencies that are responsible for coordination of the government's preparation for a presidential transition. The first is OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, and the second is GSA, the General Services Administration. Those two agencies are charged with chairing an interagency committee of all the cabinet agencies to prepare for a presidential transition. In addition, the GSA is responsible for, for providing services to both the candidates and then the president-elect post-election. So what are those services? Office space, computers, technological support. Um, basically, there has been institutionalization of the transition process so that the government provides space, computers, computer security to the transition teams post-convention because it's now a policy of the United States as a result of the Presidential Transition Act that the government wants to and wants to support effective transition planning. There are two other agencies that are absolutely critical as well, and that's the Director of National Intelligence and the Department of Justice slash FBI. So going back to President Bush, he didn't have his whole team in place on 9-11. One of the reasons he didn't is because the process for security clearances takes a long time. It could take months or even a year to get people to get cleared uh, to take their jobs. So in 2004, as a result of work from the 9-11 Commission, Congress passed a law that basically authorized the Department of Justice and FBI to take and handle security clearances for campaigns post-convention pre-election so that they can clear as many people as possible so that those people are ready to take their national security positions on day one. So it basically accelerated the security clearance process to be able to get more people in their seats more quickly. So those are the key agencies and those are the key responsibilities. Dave, are there any requirements placed on recipients of transition assistance, and how are presidential transitions funded? So the Presidential Transition Act and the appropriations bills that come every year do provide funding for transition planning. Um, it, it has tended to cost around $10 million for the campaigns to run their transition teams in the past couple of cycles, and about half of that funding comes from the government through GSA, for things like rent, computers, IT security, and other support services. The campaigns also need to raise some money. So typically, they need to raise 5 to $6 million themselves. There are conditions that the law has imposed on the campaigns uh, if they accept GSA and, and federal monies. One condition is there are campaign finance limits, so the maximum donation for the transition effort is $5,000. Those um, campaign donations, those transition donations need to be disclosed. And then the new law that was passed literally a month ago and signed by, signed by President Trump requires the campaigns as a condition for getting these support services to create and make public an ethics guidelines uh, document that will govern their ethics requirements during the transition period. So those are the conditions that are created by the law. It's both 
campaign uh, finance law related, and also ethics related. How can the U.S. presidential transition process be improved? I'll explore this question and so much more when the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Dave Marchek, Director of the Center for Presidential Transition at the Partnership for Public Service. Dave, achieving big things in government starts with an idea and imagination, but inevitably someone has to get it done. So how important is management to the success of any administration? Man, that's a total softball, Michael. I, I, so it's a great question, but it's, it's a layup. So I mean, the, the answer is that effective management is the most important activity, the most effective skill. You know, campaigns and people around campaigns love to develop policy, take great thoughts, talk about how they're going to change things. And that's very important and critical to the national debate. But the most important issue, which, frankly, IBM has focused on a lot, is implementation. So you can have the best ideas, but if you can't implement them, and you can't manage the government to effectively administer programs and effectively implement programs, then the best policy ideas are essentially worthless. I think that today's coronavirus crisis highlights the importance of effective management. If you look at the government response, there is a policy component of it. What's the policy on people sheltering in place? What's the policy on people wearing masks? But the central crisis has focused on implementation and management. Test kits to test people for coronavirus. The emergency response. The flow of funds. None of that is sexy stuff, but it makes a difference in people's lives. And in this case, it's either saving or costing people lives. New administrations too often prioritize policy expertise over operational and leadership skills, particularly when selecting political appointees. First, how many political positions across the government does the president have to fill? And could you break that down? And second, what are some of the key challenges and best practices in this area? And how does the partnership's presidential transition guide seek to help in this area? Okay, great question. So there are 4,000 political positions that a new president needs to appoint. 
Around 1,250 of them need to be confirmed by the Senate. This includes the 15 cabinet agencies, but also very important sub-cabinet roles. Um, and also independent agency heads like FCC and the FTC. Um, let me just give you some data. So if you think about this, there's 1,250 positions that need to be confirmed by the Senate. President Obama, as I mentioned, had the most effective launch, most effective start for a transition ever. How many of those 1,250 people do you think Obama had in office? in office, in their seats, 100 days after taking office. So there are 1,250. He had the best transition ever. How many do you think he had in place? He had 69. So the best transition ever, he had 69 people in place at the 100-day mark. And basically, again, the fastest, smoothest transition ever, he had less than half of his people in place at the one-year mark. So this gets to the central focus of the Center for Presidential Transition, which is early transition planning helps speed up the process of getting people in place. Speeding up the process of getting people in place is essential for implementation of the policies of a new president. And getting people in place is also critical for the management of the government. And so that's our focus at the center. Our, we have a guide that we put out uh, in the last cycle. It was downloaded something like 20,000 times. And basically, it, it's 200 plus pages. And it basically provides a step-by-step -step guide for things that the transition teams should, should think about doing uh, to have a more effective and smooth transition. And that guide is based on the work uh, of every single previous transition team that's, that's been in office since the Carter administration, we've interviewed you know, dozens and dozens of people. We've had sessions. We've, they've reviewed it. They've helped with our checklist. And it's really a best practices guide that, that is available for the transition teams. Dave, what are the benefits of creating a strong central management team starting during the transition? How can having such a team in place accelerate the incoming president's ability to execute policy priorities and develop a management agenda? So having a strong team in place in the White House is probably the first priority for any president. Going back to lessons learned from both the Carter administration and the Clinton administration, Carter and Clinton focused erroneously on filling the cabinet first and turned to the White House staff second. And that turned out to be a big mistake. Reagan, Bush, Obama, they did the opposite. So the White House staff is the most important for the effectiveness of government because they manage and coordinate all the policy and also the implementation of policies and the, the execution of management priorities. So the first thing that we advise transition teams is focus on the White House, appoint your chief of staff, let that chief of staff pull together the best people around him or her, and then have a separate team of people focus on filling the cabinet and sub-cabinet and all the positions in the agencies. But it's absolutely critical to have centralized management in the White House, to have strong people that can drive change, that can implement policies, and that can effectively manage really one of the largest organizations in the world, which is the federal government. 
Dave, what are the key challenges to ensuring the continuity in personnel operations? How important is it to have steady and stable leadership from the transition through the first year of an administration? So what we've advocated is that a strong centralized personnel operation in a transition is really important, and that that personnel team should continue on at least for the first year of a new administration. So let me give you a couple examples. President George W. Bush appointed a fellow named Clay Johnson to run his transition and also to be head of presidential personnel. Clay Johnson uh, worked with President Bush in Texas. They were old college buddies. And Clay was not really a political, he, he is not really a political position person, he's a manager, and he really wanted to do personnel. He, he loves it and wanted to do that. So he planned Bush's transition, then he took over presidential personnel, and he served in that role for several years. Obama had a really talented team of people working on presidential personnel during the transition, led by Mike Froman, and also including people like Don Gibbs. There was a really good, very good team. Mark Patterson uh, worked on these issues. He was an expert on Senate confirmations, and he worked as part of the team. And then Jim Messina ran the campaign or was one of the campaign leaders. And then after the election, he essentially merged his operation with Mike Froman's operation, and they worked as a team to select personnel and get them ready to take government and take their seats in government. One of the things that the Obama people tell us is that they made a mistake by essentially allowing that very good, highly talented team of people to dissipate. They didn't keep them in place in the White House for long enough. So as I mentioned, the Obama team had the fastest and best start of any transition team ever. There was a fellow named Chris Liu who ran the transition, and he did a, a great job. Froman, Messina, Don Gibbs, Mark Patterson, and a few others ran personnel. But what happened after inauguration? So Jim Messina goes and becomes deputy chief of staff. Mike Froman becomes deputy economic advisor. Don Gibbs stayed as head of personnel for six months, uh, maybe five months, and then went to become ambassador to South Africa. So essentially, because Obama wanted these people in different positions, and because perhaps some of these folks didn't want to continue doing personnel, this team that did a great job of, of creating a great launch for Obama essentially left, and a new team took over. And I would say that our view, and probably the Obama team's view, is that best practice would be to have the people that are running personnel in the transition operation stay for at least a year, ideally two years, to run personnel in the White House. Given the number of positions to fill, analysis shows that 70% of the time spent filling political appointments is under the control of the White House. Dave, what can the next White House do to facilitate the process and accelerate confirmation for these positions? How can the appointments tracker help in this area? So if you think about the process for appointing someone, you have a list of candidates who may be under consideration for that position. 
then you start doing some vetting to see if those people have had problems, haven't paid their taxes, have had controversy, basically if there's something that makes them unsuitable. Then you ask them to do a fill out a questionnaire. Then they have an FBI background check. They have to negotiate with the Office of Government Ethics to make sure that they are uh, will be in compliance with the ethics laws, which are very important for integrity of government. Then the president makes a decision on whether they appoint that person or not. And then they have to go through the Senate confirmation process. So this whole process takes a very, very long time. The Senate confirmation process alone can take four to six months. For cabinet officers, our data shows that it's pretty quick, 20 to 25 days, basically because the cabinet is a priority. But for sub-cabinet positions who really run the guts of government, it takes four times as long as it does for cabinet officials. So it's the, confirm- the, the process of getting people in their seats, in our view, is too complicated and it takes too long. So what are the things that can be done to speed this up? And there's a really smart, capable person at the partnership named Christine Simmons, who worked on the Hill and worked in the Bush White House. And she's focused on a whole range of process reforms to simplify the process. So starting with something as mundane as the forms, okay? There's a form which anybody in government knows. It's called the SF-86. It's a dreaded document. It's 136 pages. Every person needs to fill it out if they're going to have a security clearance. And it requires you to tell the, the FBI every foreign country that you've been to, what foreign nationals have you interacted with? Anything that's potentially compromising in your background. And it's 136 pages. So that's just brutal for anybody to fill out. So we've made a number of recommendations to simplify and streamline the forms. Obviously, if you're going to become head of the CIA or head of the the Defense Department or in a critical intelligence role, you should be scrutinized your background you know, with the tiniest and strongest of microscopes because we want people with perfect integrity and not to be compromised in those positions. But if you're going to be you know, an assistant secretary for public affairs at the Department of Education, it's logical that you don't need the same level of background investigation as the head of the CIA. So Christine and her team have worked for many years on a number of reforms to just simplify the process, simplifying the forms, smooth the, the confirmation process. There, there was a, a group of experts on this that met and put out a report a number of years ago, and about 80% of those recommendations from that group are still unimplemented. And there just are so many things that we can do to ease the process for getting people into their seats and get better people to, to be interested in, in government by simplifying this daunting process, even with something as simple as simplifying the forms. 
A recent history also shows that one of the key challenges for a second-term administration is to prepare for significant turnover among the highest level of government. Does the center have any recommendations for how an incumbent administration can deal with such a challenge? Yes, we've spent an enormous amount of time on this, and we have a number of recommendations. We have a chapter in our new transition guide focused on second-term planning. And let me just give you some data. In the last three two-term administrations, so Obama, Bush, Clinton, 43% of the top people in government, secretaries, deputy secretaries, and undersecretaries, left the government within six months of the president's second term. So basically, almost half of the people leave within six months, which means that a president running for a second term should really think about planning for the second term very much like they should think about planning for a first term. Obviously, you're going to have some continuity in government, continuity in policies, and you'll have a policy agenda that you want to uh, execute for the second term. But on the personnel side, you're going to have to replace, on average, about half your people, which means that you should be getting ready three, six, nine months before the election to get a new slate of people in office. We had a podcast on this on Transition Lab with Josh Bolton and Dennis McDonough, who were two second-term chiefs of staff. And it was really a great podcast. I encourage people to listen. And we had a little debate over the Obama numbers and the Bush numbers because one had more turnover than the other. And they were kind of ribbing each other about who had more turnover. And Josh Bolton made the point to Dennis. He said, actually, turnover in the second term is good. You want that. People are exhausted. You want fresh eyes, fresh legs, innovative people. And you want people to come in energized in the second term to bring a sense of urgency, vitality, and energy in the second term. So turnover is good. And then what Josh and Dennis both agreed upon is that a president's team should have a transition planning effort in year four to prepare for year five. Dave, how do you build joint political career leadership teams, and what are the benefits of creating such a team? So let me reflect on that with a personal anecdote going back to 1993. So I worked on the Clinton campaign in 1992. Clinton obviously beat George H.W. Bush, who was the incumbent. And I remember coming in, I was 26 or 27. I was probably a knucklehead. I probably wasn't qualified for the jobs that I was given. And I remember thinking, we're so smart. We won the election. We have all the good ideas. And basically, the people that were doing this before obviously didn't know what they were doing because we won. That was a knucklehead approach that many, many political appointees take when they just come into office. What I quickly realized was that the career officials are substantive, experts, they know what they're doing, they know how to get things done, and they really have no political agenda. They're there to serve whomever is elected. And so the most effective political appointees, many of them will probably make the same mistake that I did when I was probably a dumb 26-year-old, 
But the most effective political appointees approach their position in government with the goal of total collaboration with the career officials who will serve under them. Because if you collaborate with the career officials, you're going to be much more effective in advancing policies and projects to implement for the benefit of the American people. So best practice is really to work closely with the career officials, to find ways to partner, to rely on their expertise, to push them to change and to try new things. But basically, they're experts and you can't do it without them. So you need to find ways to collaborate. Dave, what recommendations do you offer the next administration to prepare political appointees for federal service? What are some of the challenges in this area? So one of the things that we focused on the partnership, and I really give Max Steyer and others credit, and IBM has done a lot of great work on this as well, so I really give IBM credit, is to invest in training for political appointees just like we should invest in training for any other leaders. So the Partnership for Public Service, for example, has run a program called Ready to Govern, where political appointees come to the partnership and engage in training with people that have had those positions before and with experts in management. So basically, they come to to learn from mistakes that other people have made from successes other people have had, and to learn how to become much more effective in their roles. You know, the average political appointee is only there for 18 to 24 months. And so if you're not effective in your job in that short period of time, you're really not going to get much done. And so an investment by a new administration or even an existing administration in training, in improving the skills, in improving the effectiveness of political leaders is really an imperative, and it's something that we've been very focused on at the partnership. Dave, the next administration's political leadership team will be supported by 7,200 members of the Senior Executive Service, the SES. What steps can the incoming administration take to strengthen the talent in the SES? So the SES is perhaps the most important management layer of the government. These are senior career officials who have really achieved the pinnacle of their careers by being appointed to the senior executive service. One of the first things a new president should do is to speak to the full SES cohort, share his or her vision of what he's trying to achieve, and enlist their help and communicate with them how the president wants to make government more effective. Second, that a new president should invest in the capabilities of this group through coaching, leadership development, and mobility assignments. So let me just give you an interesting data point. So, you know, at IBM, the most effective top leaders move around the divisions within IBM. So someone that becomes CEO may have been in the computer part of the business, the server part of the business consulting part of the business, and the most effective leaders have led in different divisions. And that's typical of any big organization. In the federal government, only 8% of SES officials move agencies once they become SES. 8%. So this essentially diminishes their growth 
and effectiveness of this executive contrary, which are the people that are supposed to be leaders in the government. They're leaders in addition to becoming, in addition to become to being technical experts. And the leadership capability is perhaps the most important thing. And so more mobility is something that could benefit as benefit that executive cohort as well. And then the third thing we recommend is to have a substantial investment in recruiting best-in-class talent for the SES. One of the ideas we promoted is requiring all new SESers that have worked in multiple agencies and to, to work in multiple sectors of the government to move around. We also should attract many more people from outside the government into the career ranks. So more than 90% of the SES cohort has come up through the government. That cohort would benefit from greater private sector skills and more experience uh, in the private sector. So those are some ideas we have, and I think that there are also ideas that IBM has advocated as well. How can we foster continuity on government management initiatives? I'll explore this question and so much more when the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. What are the characteristics of a well-prepared, successful presidential transition? And what does the future hold for the U.S. presidential transition process? We will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Martha Kumar, author of Before the Oath, How George W. Bush and Barack Obama Managed a Transfer of Power. Your book does a wonderful job of giving the legislative regime, if you will, of what rules or what laws apply to how the transition, whether it's funded, what's available. Could you give us a sense from like 1960s to now, what laws are out there? Well, in in uh, 1960s, in that period and a bit uh, in, uh, earlier, the parties picked up the tab. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, but with money left over from the campaigns. 
Then in 1963 is the first legislation, and uh, with that legislation, um, you do have funding. It didn't uh, say exactly how that money was to be divided because the money isn't really turned out not to be sufficient. Then you begin to have private funding, and so Nixon raised a million dollars to help his uh, his transition. Then gradually. There's a discussion of whether you could use uh, campaign funds, and uh, which is what Carter wanted to do to uh, help prepare for the transition. But that was denied by the Federal Election Commission. Then gradually, Congress recognized that uh, they needed outside money mm-hmm. because now it takes about 12 to $15 million to transition. do a transition. But then they became sensitive to if you're going to raise outside money, then you have to have restrictions on it. So then they began uh, putting restrictions on it as well, as well as increasing the amount of money and making sure there was a difference between the amount of money that the incoming president was to get as well as the uh, outgoing would get um, substantially less. Say by, by 1992 that the um, allocated government funds were $5 million. And then in private fundraising in 92, they had about um, $5.3 million. So gradually, the amount of outside money has, uh, has gone up substantially. And Congress became sensitive to issues such as um, the disclosure of in-kind contributions. And so uh, contributions then had to include things such as what kinds of of furniture, staff, um, all sorts of of things that people were giving that were in-kind that they had to be disclosed as well. Then in 2000, in the 2000 Act, uh, required that uh, the National Archives and Records Administration and the General Services Administration were required to create a directory of information on federal departments and agency. And GSA was required to talk to candidates about uh, communications and computer systems, the more they became a factor. And that requires a lot of early work because you want to have a secure system. And then into the whole process comes the Office of Government Ethics, which begins their work in, uh, of, with uh, presidential appointments in the uh, Reagan administration and becomes another factor that you have to consider is getting through the whole process of, uh, of disclosure of finances. So generally, it has just become a lot more expensive with the many more requirements that there have been. So more, it's more money and more regulation. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Dave Marchek, Director of the Center for Presidential Transition at the Partnership for Public Service. Dave, what is the center doing to foster continuity 
on government management initiatives. So this is a priority for the entire partnership and not just the center, that there are a significant number of important priorities that span administrations. I'll just give you a couple. Investment in technology. So right now, you have huge numbers of people in the federal government working from home. My wife is one. She's a career official at HHS. Investing in technology for government officials and for government effectiveness is a multi-year process. It spans much longer than a single administration, a two-term administration. It's a long-term investment. And so investment in technology and management are long-term continuity of government exercises that should span any one political administration and should, there should be continuity beyond that. You know, another example is emergency management. So obviously, political leaders are critical for providing leadership during an emergency like we're having today. But most emergency management activities are actually coordinated by career officials who are going to be there regardless of who is president. And so significant investments in emergency management operations is another example where continuity of government and long-term investing, long-term leadership development, long-term investment in effectiveness is absolutely critical. Dave, the center posted a recent piece outlining a novel approach to budgeting for government modernization, ideas for new leaders. Would you tell us more about the recommendations made in this blog post? What strategies can federal agencies use to encourage private investment in government modernization? Sure. Actually, this blog post we did in cooperation with our friends at IBM, Dan Chuck called and said, hey, we have this great report, and we promote it on your blog. And we said, yes, that's a great idea. So basically, the recommendations focus on how government agencies can best leverage the resources of the private sector to be much more creative, much more inventive in the way that we handle budgets and acquisitions. And the blog offers and the report offers a number of solutions. Some are difficult to achieve, but others you know, are highly achievable. So one example is private sector organizations provide services and technology and products to the government. And one of the recommendations is that the government can partner with technology firms and provide companies with dividends or incentives if they save money for the government. So you know, every taxpayer wants the government to be effective and efficient and to save money. And when there's a private sector company providing services or support to the government, if that company actually saves the government money through efficiency or effectiveness, that company should be rewarded. And so the the blog post and the report focus on some innovative ideas to leveraging technology in the federal government. And really, a lot of credit goes to our friends at IBM. Dave, could you tell us more about the Transition Lab podcast you host? And perhaps you could highlight some insights on best practices for presidential transitions. Sure. Well, the Transition Lab podcast has been a lot of fun and very interesting. We've had, uh, we're taping this April 2nd. And on April 2nd, I think we've had nine uh, episodes that we've released. We're planning about 20. And the focus is all things transition. So we're going to do one episode on each of the transitions for every modern president from President Carter to President Trump. Um, 
So we've had some great people. We've had former chiefs of staff. We've had people that run transitions. I just did one with Andy Card, uh, who was the chief of staff for, for President George W. Bush. But he actually was one of the key people in developing the transition plans for President George H.W. Bush. We also have had some specific thematic podcasts. We had Stephanie Cutter, which we're, we're going to release in a couple of weeks. She was the communications director for the Obama transition. And she talked about the communication challenges they faced in the period post-election, pre-inauguration, during the financial crisis, when the, the country really turned their focus from President Bush, who was still in office and still would be in office through January 20th, to President-elect Obama to lead during the financial crisis. And Stephanie talked about the challenges they faced when the country was looking to Obama to lead, but he wasn't president. President Bush was still president. So it's very interesting. And then one that I really loved doing was with the uh, author, Michael Lewis, the best-selling author. He wrote a book called The Fifth Risk, which is all about the Obama to Trump transition and the problems in that transition. And he's just fantastic, a great storyteller. And, you know, it was fun because my son has watched Moneyball about 30 times, including during the shelter in place period. And so, you know, it was fun to talk to Michael, who's just a great author and a great storyteller. So I'd encourage everybody to sign up and download Transition Lab on your favorite podcast app. If you're interested in history, if you're interested in politics, if you're interested in tension in government, it's the place to listen. This has been the Business of Government Hour. A conversation with Dave Marchek, Director of the Center for Presidential Transition at the Partnership for Public Service. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, and at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. These individuals are truly changing the way government does business. So join them each week on the Business of Government Hour. Find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Network.